0: you're listening to the co-main event podcast and now your hosts ben folks and chad dundas
1: That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week?
2: Doing great. I came up this walk that seemed like it had been freshly shoveled. Oh yeah. By got out
1: there and got that done before 9 a.m. in accordance with local law. Some enterprising homeowner
2: had gotten out there with a shovel, really gotten after it. I appreciated
1: that. You managed to walk from your car to my home with your feet being unmolested by snow.
2: That's right. Just felt like walking on a cloud.
1: I'll tell you what happened to me on Saturday night. Actually, it didn't really happen to me. It happened in proximity to me. Uh I watched the Tough 24 finale, the Tournament of Champions. Okay. After... uh Tim Elliott and Demetrius Johnson finished up their like, surprisingly competitive and awesome fight, which I assume we'll talk about later in the show. I just stood up from my couch. I was about to call it a night. I heard a, a series of loud crashing sounds. I went to the, to the door and peeked out the window, and there was a car in the middle of the street right in front of my house on its top. Wow. A lady flipped her damn car over in the middle of the street. How? Your street is so narrow, I don't even see how there's room to flip I your car really over. I really wish in the that I had seen it happen. But uh, by the time I looked out the window, it was just uh, sitting on its top, and there was a crowd of people forming in the street. The woman was fine, miraculously, unharmed. Uh, but it seemed like she maybe totaled the across the street neighbor's truck. Uh, there was gas leaking all over the road. Wow. Uh, the fire department had to come, a couple of uh, cop cars, big
2: big to do. And she was miraculously unharmed. So basically what you're saying is that she's basically the Bruce Willis character from Un- Unbreakable.
1: That, that That's could what I'm be. hearing. I don't know. Uh, I watched her get arrested, so it's possible that now the Bruce Willis character from uh, Unbreakable is cool in her heels in the sneezer.
2: So so there might have been another element to this car crash. You know, well, yeah. This I single mean, car crash.
1: You would assume that there was. I would say, like, just from viewing her from across the road, she did not... Appear outwardly intoxicated to me, but it's possible I missed something. I wasn't professionally on the case, so
2: yeah, you were off the clock. <laughs> That's what I was off saying. the clock, yeah. And I, I assume that you observed all this without ever leaving your home. I imagine you no, standing I, here with your nightcap on uh, and your—I tell you what—I pajamas, I did. I, your robe, your sleeping robe, staring out the window.
1: I called nine one one, talked to the uh, the emergency operator, then I went outside, uh, but kind of had that like. Kind of had that feeling after going out there that I didn't have any business being out there, wasn't going to do anything. I was just kind of a looky-loo at that point, so I retreated back into the house uh, and ended up going to bed. It was late. It was almost midnight. God, she must have been hauling ass, though, just to flip your car upside down. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't even that icy out there, but okay. No, this was before the snow. It wasn't really icy at all, so who knows? How she did it. Either she was going super fast, or it is easier to flip your car upside down than I ever imagined.
2: Is it too late for you to get on this case? Can I convince you to take this case? Like kind of a
1: Mythbusters episode. A private where we, you and I go how about you and I go up there and try to flip a car up on its top. Yeah. See how easy it is and or hard.
2: Yeah. And I mean, if the the cops show up afterwards, we'll just offer this explanation and so be it. we will be
1: Podcast fun. hosts running a, a scientific experiment. you
2: are free to go? Is what they'll say.
1: Also, we're gonna use your car. Well, let's
2: discuss that part later.
1: Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. Fulton & Rourke is a men's grooming company that thoughtfully creates products based on the way guys get ready. Don't miss out on the holiday gift sets Fulton & Rourke is rolling out this year. The gift sets include their 100% American-made dop kit, a full-size tube of the award-winning shave cream, the skin-balancing face wash, a half-pound brick of Fulton & Rourke bar soap, and 10 cooling aftershave cloths i have personally used all this stuff with the exception of the dop kit and i can say without reservation that it is all awesome that's right chad and if listeners just went to
2: fultonandrourke.com and bought all those items separately it would cost nearly 150 bucks but right now if you go to the website and order the holiday gift set you can bring it all home for a flat fee of 99 bones get it for yourself for someone you love or just someone you think deserves to look and smell a little better this christmas
1: I said it last week, but I'll say it again. It is a bargain at any price. Check out the holiday gift sets with your own two eyes at FultonandRourke.com. That's Fulton and R-O-A-R-K dot We got new music this week from an artist named Dion Rodriguez. I don't know that much about him except that his tracks are dope and that he hails from Deltona, Florida, which is actually where the paychecks used to come from. If you did uh, freelance work for UFC magazine.
2: Okay. Does he have any weird spelling in his name or anything we should know about?
1: Well, yeah, it's uh, it's Dion Rodriguez, just like it sounds, but uh, we're going to be playing his tracks for the next two or three weeks, and we'll see where it goes. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7, and here's where your question comes in, because the S in Beats is actually a Z. What? beats. So there you go. Nice. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co Main Event podcast. In round number one, Tim Elliott, you beautiful bastard, where have you been all of our lives? Oh, you were you were toiling on the independent circuit since two thousand fourteen. Good to know. And in round number two, welcome to the World Mixed Martial Arts Athlete Association. Say it with us now, Ma. And in round number three, Anthony Pettis goes from the brink of obscurity to tumbling Bass Ackward into a title shot. You better believe he's got a guy for that. All that plus just saying stuff. Are you fucking kidding me? And at long last, the return of Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of Listener Mail. Listener Mail. The first piece of Listener Mail this week comes to us from Joe Wignell. He writes, Just read that Conor McGregor is going to try to move to boxing so he can basically make more money... Uh, and for me, this raises three questions. Firstly, how much damn money do you need? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. Yes, we all know the answer is all of it. Secondly, is this even possible with his current UFC contract? And I guess the third question is, would you prefer to see him stay in MMA and try to reform the sport in a Muhammad Ali style so that all fighters can make some damn money? You can probably guess that this would be my preferred option, and it seems like he would be in an even better position than someone like GSP to actually deliver some kind of change. Um, Let's pump the brakes a little bit on, on this Joe Wignell, because we know we found out last week that Conor McGregor had applied for and received a boxing license
2: in California in the
1: state of California. But I'm not sure that necessarily equates to Conor McGregor trying to move to boxing so he can basically make more money. Right. In fact, the future of Conor McGregor's boxing license in the fu- in the state of California is unclear at this time.
2: Yeah, and as we mentioned in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, an interesting thing that had escaped my notice when it first ran uh, over there on Bloody Elbow, and, and this was what, like back in May?
1: Yeah, an article by John Nash back in May. Yeah, uh, basically about how... If Conor McGregor
2: wanted to try to get out of his UFC contract, a somewhat risky but not impossible strategy would be to get a boxing license and then basically apply for protections against his UFC contract under the Muhammad Ali Act, since then he would be a boxer, Yeah. and if you're stopping him from making a living as a boxer, then the Muhammad Ali Act might come into play, Um, which, and it even said in that article, like, again, back in May, that The two states to try to apply for a license in order to do this would be uh, New York and California.
1: Yeah, it's actually kind of, uh, I guess, funny, you would say, the way the article is written, because it provides a a three or four step process that Conor McGregor would go through if he wanted to lodge a uh, legal challenge against his UFC contract. And step one literally says, receive a boxing license, preferably (laughs) in the state of New York or California. And otherwise cuz y- you have to ask yourself why California in this situation
2: because everybody automatically jumped to the assumption, oh here we go, uh, McGregor versus Mayweather or at least, you know, more meaningless bullshit to hype and further the endless and f- infuriating talk about Mayweather versus McGregor. Because why would you get a boxing license in California? You know that if you're going to box Floyd Mayweather, you're probably going to do it in las vegas you're you're not going to do it somewhere in california uh, that just would not be how we would all envision that thing going down so that would that explanation would answer the question why california although it also still like it's not like you do that and even this article made very clear that you still face a lot of hurdles and a lot of ways for this to go wrong for you if you're Conor McGregor.
1: Yeah, it seemed like at least uh, from the point of view of the people that John Nash had talked to that it would be maybe kind of a risky long shot. But I also don't think that you can ignore the proximity of this move to uh, the stripping of Conor McGregor's featherweight title. It just seems like uh, if he felt like the ball was in his court to make the next move, And he was upset about that, and obviously I'm just spitballing and speculating about that, but this would seem to be what you would do if you were Conor McGregor and you uh, were even thinking about trying to make a go of it elsewhere. Uh, And it brings up, as you said, a super interesting, in my opinion, legal challenge as to whether or not Conor McGregor could be protected under the Muhammad Ali Act as a boxer, Uh, And the specific wording of the clause in the UFC contract that he would, uh, you know, assumedly be trying to challenge, uh, which I believe is uh, like clause 3.5 or something like that in the UFC contract, the standard UFC contract. And again, we don't know the content of Conor McGregor's contract, but this particular clause is in the standard UFC contract, but it basically prohibits anyone who has signed the UFC contract from doing anything in combat sports while under this UFC contract, and it specifically references boxing, has the word boxing in the contract. So if Conor McGregor turns himself into a boxer, and this UFC contract prohibits him from specifically from boxing, uh, it seems like you could, in fact, lodge a fairly narrowly focused legal challenge about whether or not that contract can apply to him.
2: Yeah, or at least you know, can apply to him in that that setting. Yeah, But you're right that the timing of it does make it seem like kind of a classic Conor McGregor move in the sense that you do something to him, he's not just going to sit around. And it did seem on social media, for instance, that he took the stripping of his title rather lightly, uh, did not really respond to it too much. Right,
1: yeah, he sent out the only tweet that he really sent out since then— or, like, in the immediate wake of that, I don't know if he's tweeted since then, since so I haven't eyeballed Conor McGregor's Twitter account, but it was him with his girlfriend, like, waiting for their car, right? And it just said, <laughs> at the valet! And, like, had a picture of him and D Devlin, which, as I wrote, I think, in Bleacher Report on Bleacher Report last week, seemed like, to me, a statement even in and of itself. Like, I am not sweating this kind of a thing.
2: Or there is also the possibility that we're just reading way too much into absolutely everything the man does. It's possible, but that tweet...
1: Alone is so vapid and meaningless. <laughs> True, I, can, I just can't for the life of me figure out why you would send it unless to say, "Check me out!" Like I'm not, I'm not sweating you guys.
2: Yeah, and then you go ahead and you get your boxing license on and let everybody know that you have done that, and you basically send the message that you know what you you are willing to consider other options.
1: Yeah, uh, it's weird to me that the that the John Nash article hasn't like. Gained a little bit more like wider circulation at this point. I saw people on Twitter just yesterday sort of discussing who Conor McGregor would likely face in a boxing match. And the whole time that that's happening. Mike right? Tyson. Yes, exactly. Mike Tyson. I've, I've, I I kind of feel like that it maybe misses the point. Like that discussion maybe misses the point depending on what happens next. Because it kind of sounds like it doesn't matter who his opponent would be. Roy Jordan Jr. If this is a means to challenge that UFC contract. Like, he could book a boxing match against anyone.
2: Manny Pacquiao.
1: I like these ideas. Okay. You're writing these down? Yeah. No, I got them. Don't worry. Uh, Next question this week comes to us from Ryan in NY. He writes, I would like to do a guest. Are you fucking kidding me? My are you fucking kidding me is regarding the UFC show in Albany this Friday. My cousin and I thought, oh, hey, cool, UFC in Albany. They'll put a good card together for the first show in the capital of New York. Uh, this is going to be awesome, our first UFC event that we've attended. Then, they roll out this total shit card. But as a big fan, I say, quote, Well, at least there's a Sun Sal versus Sterling. That's a good fight. Nope, that fight gets scratched. Patrick Cummings is pulled from the fight against Jean Volante, and Tatiana Suarez gets pulled from her fight. Are you fucking kidding me, UFC? This might be the worst card in the history of the sport. Come the fuck on. They couldn't have pulled one of those UFC 206 fights and made it the main event uh, of this one. Throw us a bone. Is there any way in your estimation to somehow enjoy this show? The UFC has has so many good fighters. God-awful events like these have to stop. Wow. Man, scathing. I feel, I feel your pain, Ryan and NY, but also maybe just pump the brakes a little bit on worst ufc card in history
2: right? you're saying of only because there are so many competitors for that title
1: yeah 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 i mean we're we're dealing with a, a a wide swath of events that could be a contender for that and
2: you are looking at a a four fight main card that is two light heavyweight bouts and two heavyweight bouts right
1: which as i told uh, uh brian oswald my boss at bleach report today that could go one of two ways one of them could be awesome yeah the other way One of them
2: is a a combined total of six and a half minutes of fight time across the four fights.
1: And that's probably your best case scenario, right? Oh, yeah. Because otherwise,
2: Otherwise. there may
1: may be a lot of smoke breaks for people up there in Albany.
2: Otherwise, you know, you could be looking at a solid hour of staring and wheezing going on. Uh, But also worth noting, this is a fight pass card. So if you do get a bunch of first round knockouts as the big fellows start throwing them bungalows at each other's heads, man, we could be out of here in just a few hours.
1: Yeah. And I think the other, the other thing that I would point out, uh, to specifically answer the question, how are we going to enjoy this shit event? Uh, co-main event podcast, spirit animal, Derek Lewis is going to be main eventing this thing, which even if you have your, your qualms about the overall quality of the event, uh, I mean, he's probably going to deliver a good time when he goes out there against Shamil Abdurakimov. Right. And you've also
2: got, uh, also on the main card, the co-main event podcast's second favorite MMA-related fiction author, Sean O'Connell. Who usually brings the excitement. He does. In the cage. Uh, Fighting Corey Anderson, who usually doesn't bring the excitement, so we'll have to see how that one plays out. Um, But... I also happen to know it's the last fight on Sean O'Connell's contract, so there's interesting stakes for him there. So, you know, there is some stuff going on. I guess as far as the why didn't they pull one of the UFC 206 fights to bolster this card, look at that fight card and tell me which one you want to pull and then what you're going to leave your pay-per-view the very next night with because already it is some weak-ass shit on pay-per-view over there.
1: And what you're going to tell the, the fighters. Well, We bumped your fight up a week. You're not going to be on pay-per-view anymore. We booked you a nice room uh, at the Westin in Albany. Well, it's not. You're not bumping them up a week. Oh, you're, that's you're bumping one them day. day. Right? Yeah. This is one of those two. God damn it! You can you
2: can hop the bus. You get true. over there to Albany. That's true. You know now you are fighting on Fight Pass as opposed to pay-per-view. Um, but I don't know. I guess you're asking them to do you a solid at that point. I guess if you're Ryan in New York and you already bought your tickets and you're feeling a little, are you fucking kidding me about this, this upcoming fight card in your hometown, I can't say that I blame you. I would say though, let's try to take a a positive approach. Let's try to have a good attitude about this, by which I mean, you know, have a few beverages. Yep. Relax. Go out there. Um, Toy with as many different pronunciations of Shamil Abduraimov's name as you possibly can, and uh, you know make a night of it. Positive mental attitude. Yeah, bring
1: your PMA. It probably is going to come down a little bit to how much you paid for those tickets.
2: Yeah, if you paid for like the forty buck ones, yeah. where like they're pretty decent seats, and you know you're you're not breaking the bank, I would maybe hold off on a, buying the a T-shirt for this event. Maybe you don't want to reward the UFC with your merchandising dollars after a fight card like this. Um, and maybe you want to pregame a little bit so you don't have to rely on the $8 Budweiser's in the arena.
1: Yeah, a couple few frosty beverages at, at Albany's Finest Pub within walking distance of the arena. And then you go there and you hope Sean O'Connell, Francis Ngannou, and Derek Lewis make it worth your while. Which I think is, like, that's not a bad bet. Like, that's definitely a thing that could happen.
2: I guess the question is, do you make sure you show up early enough in the day that you can catch uh, the prelim fight between Keith Berish and Ryan James? Chad, did I make that up or not?
1: Uh, that sounds real to me. That sounds like a thing that's probably really on the card. It is. Okay. Neither one
2: of them have Wikipedia pages. Now,
1: see, now you're getting into lifestyle questions. I can't answer those for Ryan and NY. It depends on how old you are, what you got going on in your life.
2: What you feel your odds are of making it the the entire distance of the night.
1: Yeah, mid-20s, no kids. Maybe this is just another college football Saturday for you, except it's Friday. Yeah. Make it, yeah, pregame, make a day of it.
2: And it is a fight pass show, so this thing could go pretty quickly.
1: Next question this week comes to us from Michael Mazacaine He writes, Eve Levine made me look bad in front of my dad. Oh, wow. In a rare occ-
2: rhyming shit going on. I there.
1: know. In a rare occurrence, my dad decided to watch the final of the tough finale fights with me. Not being into MMA all that much, I started preaching the gospel of Dundasso because MMA is some carny business. Then, Eve Levine actually did the damn thing, his job, and embarrassed me. A humble Dundasso white belt Please discourse. Obviously, Michael uh, Mazzacaine or Mazzacane is talking about the uh the the removal or the the deduction of the point i guess you could say here from henry cejudo in his co-main event fight against joseph benavidez which was the actual uh tough coaches battle on this fight card which is it's not every day that that you get to say that that actually happened
2: that's right and when it's supposed to happen um I was a little bit surprised at how surprised Brian Stan acted on the broadcast and people acted on Twitter about that point deduction. Like, oh, come on. He just committed the same exact foul twice within the span of about 60 seconds. How dare they punish him? Which I understand the confusion just based on how we've historically done it in this sport. One of the things that we've been saying is a problem with the officiating is that you just never know what's going to happen after a foul is committed. But come on, you can't turn around and commit the same exact foul right after you've been warned and expect to receive just another warning. Because if that happens, then there's no point in warning you. Like, then why don't you just stop the fight after the first groin kick and say, all right, you kicked him in the groin. You could do it again if you want to, but we'd prefer you didn't.
1: Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that Eve Levine took the point. And I think that if you're the referee here, The place where you really tie your hands is when you tell Henry Cejudo after the first low kick, I know that that was intentional, but if you do it again, I'm going to take a point. Oh, yeah. I know that that was unintentional. But if you do it again, I'm going to take a point, which we all heard him say on the broadcast, because if you tell the fighter that, then you pretty much have to take a point if he does it again. Because if not, I guess it's kind of like parenting a toddler. Exactly. That that fighter has just figured out that your word is bullshit and that, that he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. So... Yeah, man, I was I was in favor of Eve Levine taking the point. Um when you get to the final scorecards at the end of this thing, they are fucking crazy. <laughs> yes. But uh, the point doesn't matter. And the point doesn't matter because you got a split decision here for Joseph Benavidez. Uh one judge scored it for Cejudo, 29 27. One judge scored it for Benavidez 29-27, which okay, I guess. And then one, one judge scored it 30 26. For Benavidez.
2: Uh, Well, the 29-27 for Benavidez means you scored it two rounds to one. um, So it would have been 29-28. You're pretty standard 29-28 victory. Mm -hmm. Then you take the point away. So it's 29-27. Although there is a tendency on our parts to say when we actually see the scorecards, well, hey, it didn't matter anyway. The point didn't matter anyway. But – We can't discount when something like that happens, especially in the first round of a three round fight, the ability that it might have to change fighting styles on both sides, especially from the guy who lost the point because he knows, well, shit, man, a three round fight where it's often, you know, 29, 28, especially in a matchup this close you know that you can't really afford a point deduction like that. You really have to go out there and dominate after that. Maybe you feel like you got to finish the fight. It might change your strategy going forward after something like that happens so early.
1: Next question this week comes to us from Jeffrey Snow, who writes, As long as we're stripping titles and whatnot, can we go back and strip the title of Ultimate Fighter winner Ryan Hall and give him the boot? Ouch! Don't get me wrong, I respect a solid jujitsu jitsu fighter, but if you're going to fall on the canvas like a bag of sand every time someone gets close to you, like calling some sort of timeout against punches, then I don't want to watch it. Pull guard, shoot a takedown, but a falling bag of sand I just can't take. Uh, Then he has the balls to say that Gray Maynard was running from him during the fight. Give him the boot! Exclamation point. (laughs) Wow. That's a harsh take about Ryan Hall's victory over Gray Maynard this past weekend.
2: Yeah, I'm not prepared to say that Ryan Hall should be fired from the UFC due to his decision victory over Gray Maynard. Uh, I am prepared to say that there's not a whole lot of enthusiasm for Ryan Hall's next fight moving forward.
1: Yeah, I'm not also going to say a lot to stick up for Ryan Hall, except to say that uh, one of the things that I think is awesome about mixed martial arts in a big picture sense is that people bring all of these different fighting styles and strategies. Uh, and sometimes that manifests itself in a Damian Maya type figure who is just going to go out there and submit you, even though everyone in the arena knows that's exactly what he wants to do. And sometimes you get Ryan Hall, who's going to be freaky and weird and fall on his back and try to entice Gray Maynard uh, to come down there with him. And sometimes you're going to get Tim Elliott. He was going to go out there and act crazy and, and uh, give Demetrius Johnson a much stiffer test than we all thought that he would. Uh, and so even though I'm not thrilled about watching Ryan Hall compete, I kind of ed- appreciate the like the open door policy of this sport for uh, different styles and different uh, techniques. Uh, and if you go out there and get the win, uh, I don't know what you can say about it, really, other than, than it wasn't entertaining for the spectators at home.
2: You know what is telling for me is the commentary that in training for this, one of the things that Ryan Hall's team worked on was dealing with the inevitable frustration that would be coming from Gray Maynard. It tells me that you know... You know what you're doing with that fighting style when one of the things you prepare for is that your opponent and possibly everyone in the arena is going to be pissed off at you for doing it. Yeah. And you have to mentally get ready for that.
1: It takes a certain kind of mindset, I suppose. But if that's what you think you got to do to go out there and get the win, like, I don't know what else, man. Like, I support it, frankly, even though it's not my favorite thing in the world to watch. It
2: also seemed to me at times like, are we trying to. Force Gray Maynard into retirement due to frustration. <laughs> like, you look at some of his recent fights and you think, man, is that, is the sport, has the sport decided, like, all right, let's just try to convince Gray Maynard that it's not worth it anymore? Because it, it at times looked like it might be working there.
1: Uh, Last question this week comes from Matt Webb, who writes, So Jake Ellenberger versus Jorge Masvidal ends by finish due to a toehold submission by the fucking fence. I know old man Dundas was fast asleep during this whole scenario. So, Mr. Folks, your thoughts? (laughs) 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 Ha (laughs) ha. In your face, Matt Webb. I was wide awake getting ready to witness crazy car accidents in front of my house.
2: So there. Take that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that, you know, you talk about how we're used to saying some weird shit go on and mixed martial arts. Yeah. This I think was a first for me. Yeah. And a bunch of weird shit, right? Cause it's looking like it's going to be a crackerjack of a fight. It does kind of. And then Jake Ellenberger ends up getting his toe stuck. At first it looked like maybe he had hurt, you know, his knee or his ankle or something. And we we're going to look at a TKO injury situation Instead, said, we, he gets his, his toe stuck in the fence. Uh, Masvidal is not going to slow down for that. He goes ahead and, and puts it on him anyway. Herb Dean stops it and then immediately leaves the cage and you can hear him on the microphone Asking, like, what the options are, what they can do there, if they can restart the fight, and turns out you can't basically. So that's just a TKO, and officially it goes down as a TKO due to punches. But you know, he wasn't out. He wasn't. He, he even with his foot stuck in the fence, he it wasn't like he was completely unable to defend himself. He's he eats a couple shots, but he's working on getting his foot out of the fence. It just it's as raw a deal as you can possibly get for Jake Ellenberger.
1: It is. And a lot of times on this show, I feel like I come out and preach less control for the referee because I don't know that it's fair that we put all of this expectation and, uh, (laughs) Uh, pressure on the referee and ask them to like always do the exact right thing in the middle of this heated battle and that their one false move from the referee just can end the entire sporting contest, which doesn't necessarily happen in a lot of other sports. There's not, it's not like a baseball game ends suddenly in the fourth inning because of a blown call at second base, Uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, in some cases is unique to the mixed martial arts official. But in this case, unless Jake Ellenberger hurt his foot so badly that he was not going to be able to physically continue. Don't you feel like from like almost a common sense standpoint that you should be able to come back and restart the fight? Like, I don't know how you word that rule and I don't know how that works uh, in like a real world scenario, just in the sport moving forward. But like, to stop a, this fight because Jake Ellenberger gets his foot momentarily caught in the fence just seems weird. Like, it seems like you should have some kind of a, a parachute safety net clause where you can come back and say, all right, we'll 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 just do this again.
2: Uh, are you asking for essentially a I fucked up rule for the referee where he gets to invoke to say, like, you well, know see, what?
1: Now, now that's where you get into a slippery slope, right? That's why I say I have no idea how you word this because... You don't want the referee to have to be able to come back and be like, okay, well, I fucked up this perfectly normal stoppage, so we'll go ahead and run this back and do it again. But, like, this is something different from that, right? This is, like, a weird environmental malfunction of the fight. Right. Like,
2: what if a a light from, like, the lighting truss above the cage had fallen into the cage. Then everybody would look at it and be like, okay, well, we're obviously going to stop this.
1: We're going to use that as an obstacle, and you guys just go, right? <laughs> what if... Fly and drop kick off the top of the fallen light. What if Masvidal had shot for a takedown,
2: and Jake Ellenberger's pants, his shorts, had come completely off? And I'm not just talking about just the Reebok shorts coming down, which we've seen before. Say it all comes down. Say we're looking at a situation in which we clearly cannot proceed on Fox Sports 1 because all his junk is hanging out there. We're going to stop that, right? We're going to say, like, that's an environmental stoppage. Right.
1: Does Jake Ellenberger win at that point?
2: <laughs> you, you think that if you can manage to get yourself naked in the cage, you win?
1: No, the other guy, right? Okay. If Masvidal's shorts come down, is that what you said, or Ellenberger? I had
2: it the other way around. But well, so who- you're saying, like, if you can pants your opponent, then you win? I mean, what
1: else do you do there? It's besides restart, right? What if the big show bursts through the, the canvas, and makes his debut in the, in the UFC? Well, I, I don't know that we have a, a good answer for that.
2: Clearly, this is a conversation we should table for another time. We have a lot more <laughs> time to devote to it.
1: You're right. You're right. We'll figure so we have this out a lot out. of hypothetical. We'll figure this out with. at a later date. Uh at the, before we move on, can we say we haven't talked about this before, but I think that we're probably in agreement here. Can we at this point say definitively that the best nickname that we got submitted to the podcast for Robert Whittaker was Bobby Knuckles? Yeah. That was the best one.
2: De- definitely. And almost
1: like I can not somebody said it on Twitter. I can't remember which user it was, but like it almost felt unfair like they're catering specifically to us, but but th- it, it they're doing it so effectively it that I don't mind. Bobby Knuckles is an awesome nickname for Robert Whitaker. And tell me you're not like at least
2: eight times more excited to see Bobby Knuckles fight than you want to see Robert Whitaker. Nobody
1: wants to go to New Zealand to fight Bobby Knuckles. Hell no. This I know is you true. You don't stand a chance. Bobby Knuckles had
2: his straight for the title and there's not a damn thing you can do about it.
1: That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As of right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, I'm not going to come out and say that we were wrong about the Ultimate Fighter tournament of champions okay. as a season of reality television, because at this point, I don't think you can blame anyone for not wanting to watch season 24 of the Ultimate Fighter, which is really actually like season 35 or whatever once you lump in uh, tough Latin America and tough China and you know tough whatever. Uh, but this, let's just let's be honest: the tournament of champions created a fight that turned out to be a lot more fun and, frankly, a lot more competitive than I think that we thought it was going to be. So props to Tim Elliott at the start of this.
2: Yes, and that's true. We should give credit where it's due there to Tim Elliott. I also think we should go ahead and acknowledge that some of that is him benefiting from lowered expectations going into this. Absolutely right. Because of who Demetrius Johnson is, because of what he has done to past competitors, it seemed like a guy who... Had been beaten by guys like Joseph Benavidez and had, you know, never really beaten in the UFC. A big name flyweight
1: was going to go in there and get absolutely crushed by Demetrius Johnson. And plus, let's just say, as the product of a reality show, which I think was part of lowering the bar of expectations for Tim Elliott. That was that thinking that he was the guy to come out of the tournament of champions made us think, uh, well, Mighty Mouse is going to go out there and wax this guy in 35 seconds. Right. Well,
2: and... I think that, you know, we're all a little bit surprised when he goes out there in the first round and manages to at least get Demetrius Johnson in a couple choke attempts that had some of us thinking it's cause for concern, even if Demetrius Johnson did not seem all that concerned about it at the time. But I do think you also still have to pause in lavishing the praise on Tim Elliott to give. Demetrius Johnson his credit for making adjustments in that fight one of the things he does so well uh, he and that corner he has with Matt Hume is adjust as the fights going on because he seemed like he got a little bit surprised with what Tim Elliott was able to do in that first round and then by the time round four and five rolls around he doesn't seem so concerned anymore that's he, right he, he made all the adjustments he needed to make and changed that fight.
1: If ever there were a matchup where you could understand that the champion coming in had perhaps taken his opponent lightly, it might be this one. Where if you're Demetrius Johnson, you figure, uh, I destroyed everyone in my weight class so badly that they had to create this season of the Ultimate Fighter to find someone for me to fight. Uh, because, frankly, they were out of dudes for me to fight. So you could understand Maybe even subconsciously for anyone that that would create a situation where you feel like you're just going to run through this person. But I also think you are absolutely right that credit to Demetrius Johnson for uh, marshalling the troops and making those adjustments uh, and to Matt Hume as well uh, for coming back and basically shutting Tim Elliott out over the final four rounds. We still didn't think it was going to go that long. We didn't think it would be that competitive. But Demetrius Johnson did sort of pitch a shutout after being surprised in the first round. And I would say, to add to the list of things that are kind of a shame about the underappreciated nature of Demetrius Johnson, how cool, calm, and collected... And ability to uh, game plan he and his corner have like that relationship between him and Matt Hume is pretty special. It seems like in the landscape of this sport and really impressive by those guys uh, to handle this entire situation the way that they did. Yeah. And.
2: I think that one of the things that's telling here is that after this fight, Tim Elliott says, you know, I'm going to go up to 135. The weight goes really tough here. You could see the size advantage that he had over Demetrius Johnson helped him out in at least a few of those situations. And it is one more thing where you think, okay, if you can't beat Demetrius Johnson with, you know, by shutting down his wrestling, you can't beat him by trying to catch him in a choke when when he's beating you with his wrestling. You can't beat him by having a, a little bit more size on him. Uh, Unless you're somebody like Dominic Cruz, who happens to have a little bit of size on him and is like the best fighter in your own weight class. You know, where do you beat this guy? He comes out looking, I fear, just as invulnerable as ever, but also... In a way that is not going to get people terribly interested moving forward because it feels and I wrote my column about this afterwards that it feels like at this point I can't really criticize anything the UFC has done in their attempt to sell Demetrius Johnson to us. They've tried everything like they tried being like, okay, he's so dominant. He's the world's best pound for pound fighter, even though we're going to turn around two weeks later and say that about somebody else if we need to sell a pay-per-view. They've tried that angle, telling the sheer dominance. They tried, you know, doing a reality show where the entire thing is based on finding somebody who might be able to pose a challenge to him. You just, you're out of ideas, it seems to me. Like, you tried the kind of rivalry stuff with people like uh, Benavidez and Henry Cejudo, and still, you have not even budged the needle, let alone moved the needle with Demetrius Johnson. It seems like like he's kind of made his peace with that and given up and said like, all right, I'm just going to go out there and keep winning the fights. And I, I can't sell myself to you. So I'm, I'm done trying. Is this the point where we all, everybody, UFC fans, media, fellow flyweights, everybody just needs to decide like, all right, the flyweight division is the, the complete unappreciated genre of MMA. The hardcores are into it. Nobody else is ever going to be into it. That's fine. To some extent, and we'll move on with our lives with that knowledge in our minds.
1: Yeah, and again, not to sound like a broken record, but I feel like that's kind of a shame. And Demetrius Johnson, like you said, comes out of this thing basically the end result of those choke attempts by Tim Elliott. Really did nothing but make Demetrius Johnson look even harder to kill than we thought before. Like, you can't, you just like can't choke this guy, which like. Gives you a very small uh, window of possibility in in terms of like how you're going to beat him. Uh, he's he can go up there and have a bunch of stoppages, you know. Knocked out Joseph Benavides in their last fight, submitted uh, Horaguchi in their last or in their fight, uh, you know, TKO'd Henry Cejudo in the first round when they fought. Gets this pretty dominant and I thought exciting win over Tim Elliott. Uh, his trash talk is fire, frankly. Like Demetrius Johnson does about as good as you could do in terms of being a package to sell to fans in this sport, uh, he's just 125 pounds. And that makes it feel like, as you said, they tried everything to sell this guy. Like there's nothing you can do to make him seem interesting. And it's totally not anybody's fault. It's just people don't seem to want to watch 125 pound dudes fight, which I don't fully understand, but that seems like the reality of where we are.
2: I, don't, I mean, I'm not saying that it would be impossible. I think if you had a Conor McGregor-like figure at 125 pounds, you could do at least a little bit better. Uh, but, yeah, it's possible that you there might be a ceiling on the level of interest that you're going to be able to capture with those kind of fights. Uh, and But then you look at the quality of the fights, like you saw with Benavidez and Cejudo, and then Demetrius Johnson and Tim Elliott. Uh, you look also even at the... Uh, First card, our first fight on the main card, the the Brandon Moreno fight. You know, you consistently see a lot of great action from the flyweights. Uh, But the other thing is that if you're, it's one of the only divisions where if you're looking around for new blood for who else might come in there, you you don't really see a whole lot on the horizon. Like as the UFC uh, matchmakers have said to me before, especially in divisions like that, where if somebody gets hurt or has to pull out of a fight or something, the problem they face is that. They already have the best guys in the world in that weight class. There's not a whole lot of options to look around and sign somebody new who can jump in there and compete at a high level right away.
1: Let me just say as an aside that one of the things I appreciate about MMA Twitter is its ability to immediately nickname somebody like Tim Elliott Hobo Dominant Cruz and just <laughs> run with that because that's solid gold right there. Uh, well, What do we do with, with Demetrius Johnson now? Is there anything that we could possibly do to drum up like interest in Demetrius Johnson. I think we saw in this fight against Tim Elliott that one of the things that it conceivably gives him trouble is to fight against bigger guys, which we saw a little bit in his previous career as a bantamweight. But let's say Dominic Cruz, well, let's, I, I, maybe it doesn't even matter who wins the Dominic Cruz-Cody uh, Garbrandt fight that's coming up. To have Demetrius Johnson move up and try to become the second man in UFC history to simultaneously hold two titles in two different weight classes, does that do anything to move the needle, or are you just are we just tilting at windmills here?
2: I think that the the needle would be at best jostled
1: a little bit. Uh, with it, that. The needle would quiver. Slightly. Yeah. Well, and part of it is because we've seen
2: that fight already, uh, and unless it's Garbrandt. Well, if it's Garbrandt, yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'm just operating under the the assumption that Dominic Cruz would beat Cody Garbrandt, but sure, that's possible. Uh, And I also think, though, for... uh, Like, if it is Dominic Cruz who stays the champ there, there will be really not much at all for him to gain from that fight. He would... He would really only stand to lose from uh, a situation where he fights Demetrius Johnson. Right.
1: And Demetrius Johnson, frankly, has come out and said that eclipsing that Anderson Silva consecutive title defense record is important to him. And the last time we heard from him about a potential super fight with someone like Dominick Cruz, he wanted an outlandish amount of money to make it happen. So maybe that's not even a possibility at this point, though. Uh, uh, Short of that, I don't know what you do with the guy now because— uh, I well, guess he could rematch Cejudo or fight Joseph Benavidez again, but
2: seems like they're you know Benavidez is talking like that's the only fight that he will even think about is a, another fight with uh, Demetrius Johnson. It, to me, especially the way Demetrius Johnson seems to have resigned himself to his fate here, that like yeah he's not interested in trying to go up a weight class and see if that helps out the popularity situation. He's you know he's already got as you said some pretty good trash talk and he's uh, talked in the past about how. He's not really too concerned with trying to convince us all that that we should watch him. It just kind of reminds me of like, you know, I, I thought about it in terms of the the fiction world where, you know, people like us who are really into fiction and really into like literary fiction, like dudes like Jim Shepard or somebody who we, we read and we recognize that's awesome. And he even will recognize I'm never going to make, you know, Lee Child's money. I, I don't have the Jack Reacher series. Uh, keeping me financially stable and, and afloat here, but that's okay because I'm doing what I want to do, and I feel like I'm the you know one of the best at what I want to do, and that feels like basically that's where Demetrius Johnson is—that he is the literary fiction uh like master of the MMA world, and the people who are super into MMA, and even though it's going to be a much much smaller segment of the overall MMA audience, which is already a pretty small segment of the general sports audience. You know, those are the people who only are going to be the ones who primarily appreciate his work. And if he's OK with that, then I guess we should just be OK with
1: it. Yeah, and it's probably hard for him to cry about it too very much since he he made a reported $350,000 from this fight, which is obviously uh, maybe not as much as it should be. But at the same time, nothing to sneeze at. If you're Demetrius Johnson, take that home to Parkland, Washington and be OK for a while. Get the mortgage paid for a few months. Kirkland, Washington? I believe he's from Parkland, isn't he? Oh, is that, there's, a, there's a Kirkland and a Parkland? All kinds of lands out there, man. I
2: don't know if I mentioned this before, but when I went there, I went to that gym uh, when I was over in Seattle covering the fight with the, the Fodor brothers, and the AMC Pancration Gym in Kirkland is like the, the nicest neighborhood I've ever been to a major MMA gym in. Like, you go to Jackson's uh, in Albuquerque, and you don't want to be hanging around there after dark. You go to AMC Pancration and, you you know, you feel like you're in some, like, 50s TV show.
1: Doesn't surprise me that Matt Hume would drape himself in luxury, right? (laughs) All right, Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to play some Master Tweet Theater. We haven't done it in a while. We're excited to get him in here. Find out where he's been. See if he's feeling okay. Uh, That starts right now.
2: It's that time again. We welcome a friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you?
0: Good day to you, sir. I return clothed in righteous fire.
2: It looks like you're wearing a North Face thing, actually.
0: Well, well, it should burst into flames at any moment when I get righteous enough. That, that I believe. Uh, it's been a
2: while. We haven't done a Master Tweet Theater in a little while, so I imagine you've had plenty of time to just sit around and stockpile the good stuff.
0: Oh, yes, sir. I have five very strong tweets today, three of which fit a theme. <laughs> I
2: see. And what is that theme?
0: The theme is clues. Oh. Okay. Each of these tweets, by which I mean three of the five <laughs> tweets, contains a clue that you can use to guess whom the tweeter in question is, because I think we've been relying on tone a little too much lately.
2: All right. So, Chad, it seems like Sir Nigel has taken it upon himself to make some
1: changes here. I was just going to say, that sounds like the theme is the point of Master Tweet Theater, is it not? (laughs) Well, but then only three of the five are going to follow this theme, so what are the other two
2: going to do?
0: fucked on those other two. Okay. That's the real point of Master (laughs) Tweet Theater right there.
2: Well, this should be fun, or at least interesting. So, whenever you're ready...
0: Yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by French's Wood Glue, the industrial-strength adhesive from the mustard brand you trust. Here at French's, we know not to mess with a good thing. Our powerful new epoxy instantly and permanently bonds to any organic surface, but it comes in the same bottle we've used to sell mustard for years. It's even the same exact shade of yellow. Keep it simple, French's. Same packaging, same color, brand new, incredibly powerful glue.
2: Did you have a falling out with Cowboy Astronaut cigarettes?
0: Well, Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes had a falling out with the Federal Trade Commission. Oh, no. Yes, I assume they'll be back in business just as soon as they can move all their things to China.
2: Yeah, I can't understand how that business cop possibly could have gone poorly. But all right. You ready?
0: Yes. Tweet the first. Do you remember the theme?
2: Is it clues?
0: The theme is clues. All right. You will not be given credit for that response, it. It. <clears> however. <throat> Tweet the first. Like I won't Snapchat my tits. Pfft. <laughs> Girl, get real. I ain't scared.
2: All right. So the question is whether this is one of the three or one of the two. I think it's one of the three. Okay. And despite it being a little too adept in its use of the English language, I'm going to say J- Jessica I, just because Sir Nigel loves him from Jessica I.
1: Now, wait, though. Uh... What about your girl, Tanya Evinger? Is, is she active on the Twitter? Oh, she's active. Cause this, you know, I don't follow her myself, either on Twitter or on Instagram, but, but just judging from uh, the retweets that I've seen, mostly by you, I would say this sounds like something that she would tweet. It It's possible.
2: Tanya Evinger seems more interested in seeing other people's tits than in other people seeing hers, but it's possible.
1: I guess I'm going to go with Tanya Evinger, I guess. All right.
0: It is it is Tanya Woo! Avenger. The clue was that she has tits and lots of people have proof. <laughs> okay. All right. Mm. Uh, Snapchat so vanishes though, so we can See can't... That, I think that's in your face
1: right there cuz that's your
0: your girl right there. Yeah, I guess so. And I rolled up and nailed that one. Good work. I'm up I, 1-0. I guess 1 to 0 in favor of Chad Tweet the second. Had Ellen for main dish. Now it's time for a side of Rice ceroni yeah. Hashtag <laughs> make UFC great again. Hashtag easy money. Hashtag UFC. I think
2: we know that that is Mr. Masvidal.
0: I mean, it must be, right? Gotta be. It is, it is Jorge Masvidal or George Masvidal, depending on whom you ask.
2: <laughs> well, you know what? I was... I don't know about you, but I was a little bit disappointed with his Cowboy Cerrone call out in the cage just because it seemed glib to the point of us not really understanding what he was saying. But he kind of makes up for it here. Rice Cerrone.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Very good. Very good. I was disappointed because, like, is he sure the fence will beat Donald Cerrone too?
2: Maybe he has a pact with the fence that we don't know about.
0: Mm -hmm. That joke was topical. You know I love topics. Tweet the third. Daniel Kelly's daughter said, pass me the salt daddy at dinner table, and Chris Camozzi reached for it. Huh. Oh, okay. Is, there, is this one of the ones with a clue in it? There is a clue. Who knows Daniel Kelly's daughter and Chris Camozzi and might have dinner with them? It's a difficult one.
2: I don't, I don't know who knows Daniel Kelly's daughter.
0: Oh, uh-uh. I will also give you the clue that this tweet was very rapidly deleted and came to me in the form of a screenshot.
2: Okay. That adds another level of intrigue that I also don't
1: understand. Chad, do you got anything here? I have, I have no idea. I mean, I guess someone who would have been present at the, uh, at the show in Australia a couple weeks ago are last we, week. Are we
2: thinking an Aussie fighter?
1: Maybe. I don't know. Kyle Noak. Uh, was this one where, uh, Dan Hardy, did he, did he sub in for Brian Stan or am I confusing my UFC events? I think so. All right. I'm going to go Dan Hardy because he tweets a lot and he was at this event.
0: All right. Both fine guesses, both grounded in profound despair and both wrong. It is Andre Feely.
2: Okay. Why did he feel the need to delete that one?
0: Well, I assume because it implies that Daniel Kelly's daughter calls Chris Camozzi daddy in a sexual context.
2: Oh, okay. I didn't even, didn't even go there, really.
0: Really, i kind of disappointed myself. they at dinner with her father, and she addresses her father as daddy. And Chris Camozzi responds. I thought it was a, a funny slice of life.
2: <laughs> was the there was no clue here? I don't feel.
0: Well, I thought you guys would understand it better than I did. That's the last one with a clue in it. <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: okay, now it gets really interesting. Just
0: an arbitrary wasteland from here on out. Mm. Tweet the fourth. Would you rather have a BFF that tells you you are awesome all the time or one who pushes you and tells you the truth? I prefer ugly truth over pretty lies.
2: Now, see, the way you read that, I suspect that you is just the letter U.
0: Each and every U is the letter <laughs> U. Would, would you mind one more time with that one? Yes. Would you rather have a BFF that tells you you are awesome all the time or one who pushes you and tells you the truth? I prefer ugly truth over pretty lies.
2: Okay. That's that's deep. I think we can all agree on that. Um, Who loves to throw in the you and the
1: one like that? I mean, it seems... Too adept, as you said earlier, to be Jessica I, but I think I would guess Jessica I here.
2: Yeah, that's not bad. (sighs) If if only there was just a little more, like, a few more, like, autocorrect screw-ups, then I'd be on board with you. I guess I'm going to say Misha Tate for no good reason.
0: Both fine guesses, both abusers of the English language, and both wrong. It is Nate Quarry. Oh, come on. Nate Rock Quarry. Come on, man. Yeah, someone's been telling him. Pretty lies if he's still appearing on Master Tweet Theater.
1: Mostly tweeting in support of fighter solidarity and also his complaints about eBay customer service. Huh. All right. Thanks <laughs> Thanks for that yeah, sim- it's summary it's of it. It's a
0: rundown. That. All right. And this tweet about, I assume, alienating his best friend. There you go. It mm. is the
2: holiday season.
0: It is. Tweet the fifth. Do women live longer than men because of their period and having to make new blood every month where men just recycle the same? Hashtag Thursday Thoughts. What? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> oh, God. What indeed, sirs?
2: Thursday Thoughts. Please tell me this is part of a recurring segment that I can look up and, and really start enjoying on a weekly basis.
0: Yes, observing the one day a week when he thinks.
2: <laughs> oh man, some Thursday thoughts. That gives us all a lot to think about.
0: I guess your other clue is that he's a man. I revealed that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Somehow, I, that I feel like I guessed that one. I I'm just gonna go pure pure gut instinct here and say Kelvin Gastelum.
1: I think this is the return of the poet Phil Baroni. Oh I'm God just damn it. Say
0: it. God damn it! You may be right. Both fine guesses, both close variations on Philip Baroni, but both wrong. It is Matt Mitrione. Oh, oh damn it! Just when
1: you think you're out, Mitrione
2: returns. You sneak a Mitrione back in there on us? Good I feel like Matt. I've guessed Mitrione for like nine of the last eleven Master Tweet Theaters, and I've never been right.
0: Well, he's finally said something dumb enough to get back on the podcast.
2: Well, so I guess we're all now just sitting around in anticipation of this coming Thursday when we get some more Thursday thoughts.
0: Who knows what new thought he will have about what women do
2: is it just one thought per thursday or is it a whole day worth of thinking
0: i presume that he will gradually ramp up to a second thought each thursday
2: well that you know it's smart you give us something to look forward to a little room to grow there you don't want to top out right off the gate yeah i get it um So I guess that's it for Master Tweet Theater. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel?
0: You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished shooting an exciting project about a male prostitute who travels to the Old West to battle aliens from another planet.
2: I see. And what's it called?
0: It's called Midnight Cowboys vs. Aliens. (laughs) What role do you play? I play the streetwise tough who coaches the male prostitute and is also an alien with the famous line, I'm scuttling here.
2: Well, yeah, that's that's going to be a winner. That was Master Tree Theatre, and that was Sir Nigel Longstaff.
0: Thank you, Sir.
2: Well, Chad, we mentioned that it seems like we were going to have another Fighters Association on the block, and we do indeed. The MMA Athletes Association. A, Double M-Triple-A. There we go. Still not great.
1: Nope. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue.
2: But you're you're looking at everybody that they have gathered. George St. Pierre uh TJ Dillashaw, Cain Velasquez, Tim Kennedy, Donald Cerrone, and you're thinking, "All right, isn't this what we said that th- what a fighters association would need would be active fighters, people who, you know, don't have famous long-standing beefs, beefs with the UFC, uh, you know, superstar level fighters all coming together to rally other fighters to their cause." And it looks like that's a pretty good estimation of what you have there. And then you see former Bellator CEO Bjorn Rebney doing a lot of the talking, standing there with these guys, and you got to kind of wonder.
1: Yeah, like you said, this is the third or fourth mixed martial arts athletes union or association to come down the pipe so far. Uh, clearly, with guys like Saint Pierre and Velasquez, Cerrone, Dillashaw, Kennedy, uh, this one has the potential to be the highest profile of the lot of them, especially considering the number of active fighters on that list, the number of fighters that up to this point uh, have really been considered company guys for the UFC, guys like Donald Cerrone, certainly Kane Velasquez, I think, to a certain extent. Uh, TJ Dillashaw has always seemed like a guy who's done whatever uh, was asked of him. So dare I say this one looks like the MMA Fighters Association that has the most potential to actually take off. But then you're right. You get a guy out there like Bjorn Rebney, and I think, you know, we talked about in a speculative way last week on the show why a guy like Bjorn Rebney would be there. And I think I said, you know, maybe you need some executive style figurehead to essentially do the talking uh, and handle the public relations aspect of this. It does seem like that's where Bjorn Rebney is coming from on this deal. But at the same time, his involvement as a guy who certainly has people in this industry who are suspicious of him and a guy... Who didn't get very many positive reviews on his way out the door at Bellator MMA? It does. It's one of a number of things about this particular organization that I think we are right to say gives us pause. Yeah. Well,
2: and when you talk about one of a number of things, the a lot of the unanswered questions that came out of this thing also give us pause. Like, you know, who is backing it? Who, uh, you know, who, who? How are you going to go ahead and proceed? To, in order to get these things done. A lot of stuff that they were intentionally leaving unanswered. And especially when you have Bjorn Remney out there making this really vocal case against the new owners, WME, IMG, for not improving the situation when they come in and take over the UFC. And then you look and you see how many of these guys, the, the fighters, are represented by you know, creative artists, the one of the biggest rivals to WME, IMG, as far as like a, an actual agency. That's when you start to think, okay, is this just a proxy war right. between two big Hollywood agencies? Um, and when, when asked about that, they said, well, they're supporting it. They're not supporting it, but they are um, they're not backing it, but they basically have expressed verbal support for it or whatever. But it, a lot of the, the details are left kind of hazy there. And to me, I just wondered, why couldn't we have just had the fighters out there? I think that would have been a completely different response to it if you had just had uh, those fighters, especially a guy like George St. Pierre. When you hear him talking about it, you think, there you go. That's exactly what people have been waiting for, is that kind of ambassador, a guy like that who has that kind of reputation in the sport uh, and who has that kind of uh, trust among fellow fighters and that that kind of clout with fans. Having a guy like that stand up and rally everybody else seems like exactly what we have been saying the sport needs and and thought at times would never get. If you just had kept Bjorn Rebny out of the even just the public part of it, he could have been involved in the behind the scenes, I think you would have got a completely different reaction.
1: Yeah, maybe I'm just resigned at this point in this sport to the idea that nothing is ever going to go off perfectly and nothing is ever going to go off without some undesirable elements into it. I think. I think you're right. Like it might have been a better public relations move to have Bjorn Rebny, uh on the sideline rather than uh, more front and center. But given that this is the most impressive collection of actual fighters that we've seen the most high profile collection come out and say that this is an avenue that they want to explore, I'm kind of willing to sit back and let it happen and hope that they do find a purchase in the industry that people do join with them that we do figure out which one of these three or four organizations is going to be the dominant one uh and that you know and kind of wish them a, the best because as we've seen from a number of years covering the sport and being around the sport there are a lot of things that could be done to make life better and easier for the fighters and any way we get to that I think is is good progress I, I'm a little bit uh disappointed and tired of the industry's uh pension to kind of sit around and make jokes about whatever is happening uh even if it's a serious endeavor and granted there's parts of this that I don't like the name is not good <laughs> the uh the the logo has a fist in it which Thank money, God yeah. we got an MMA logo with a fist in it. Yeah. Uh, Bjorn uh, Rebbe idea being there seems come. like a big risk. But, like, I don't know. I'm still of the mindset, like, let's see if they can actually make this thing happen. And let's wait and see if this is an honest effort to come up with a fighters association or if these guys are pawns of the CAA trying to just make moves against WME IMG. Uh, but I, as I, th- I think that, like, as we wrote in The Breakfast of Champions this past week, the possibility exists that people could be here for the wrong reasons, that Bjorn Rebney might not be the exact right guy, but they still make positive progress, which I w- would take at this point. Yeah, and see, that was,
2: to me, the, the strongest parts of the argument was when they focused on why fighters need an association, what the current reality is for them, you know, their estimate about fighters receiving 8% uh, of DOC re- revenue, and they...
1: The argument, Which is lower than we even thought.
2: Yeah, the argument that they, that MMA fighters, UFC fighters in particular, among major sports, take the greatest risks for the least reward, that's your argument right there. And that is a very difficult argument to counter. I think when you focus on the actual reality of that, then, you know, that's where you're, you're strongest if you're a fighters association. Because when you start laying it out like that, it's really hard for people to say that they would not that fighters would not benefit from some kind of collective bargaining, some kind of association to speak for them all. Um, To me, I guess one of the things that worried me was if when Bjorn Rubney says, Hey, I'm not, I'm not on the board of this. Just the fighters here that you see here are the the members of the voting board. Uh, I'm just here for, for strategy and advice. And if I were involved in the strategizing and the advising, I would have said, don't have Bjorn Rubney be the guy who does a lot of the talking when you go out there, because, that's what people are going to end up focusing on afterwards like and you're you're handing the UFC some easy ammunition to counter you with like what do you think Dana White's going to say the first time somebody manages to pin him down and ask him some questions about this he's going to just go right at Bjorn Revenue's involvement yeah. and you know you saw the response from a bunch of different managers who you know people who are in a position to influence their own clients you need that those fighters to trust you in order to to take the risk of saying hey yeah i'm with you let's do this, even if it's scary for all of us, let's take this leap. You need that trust for fighters. And when you had so many managers on Twitter as this thing was going on saying, nope, I will not have anything to do with this. I will tell my cl- my clients not to have anything to do with it because I don't trust Bjorn Rebney based on my past dealings with him. That's going to influence those guys. And it just doesn't seem like a great way to start off. Also, he was on the the Fortnite today yeah. talking about it. Here's his quote in, in response to kind of the... Uh-huh. ''Hey, how about the negative uh, reaction to you being involved?'' I expected it, Rebney said. I was the second largest mixed martial, pr- mixed martial promoter in the world for a number of years. I didn't expect people would look at me and go, oh, oh, my God, what a natural transition that is. I didn't expect people to go, oh, that's awesome. What a great dude. I expected people to go, ah, why is he doing this? That guy was part of the problem. Why is he now part of the solution? Yeah, I expected that. The good news is the negative vibe has been focused on me, which is exactly where it should be. But the better news is that the reaction has been big. That's not a very convincing answer to
1: me. Right. There's like The fact that there is a negative vibe is... Frankly, a negative. So there you go. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. It'll be interesting to see if people publicly sign on with them. It'll be interesting to see if they have to publicly part ways with Bjorn Rebny at some point. Uh, And we will end up talking about this again, I think. Let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on. Uh, to round number three. Ben, my Are You Fucking K- Kidding Me This Week is tangentially related to the Mixed Martial Arts Athlete Association. And that is that I just have to ask, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? What is happening with Cowboy Cerrone's eye? Because we saw him on Instagram a couple weeks ago, uh, with a, just a terrible looking eye injury, which people said was makeup from a movie that he was doing. And then fast forward a couple weeks to this week's embedded, Either he's really wearing that makeup, or something is legitimately fucked up with his eye. And he's got a fight this weekend, so are you fucking kidding me? What are we doing here with Cowboy Cerrone's eye? Is it makeup? Is it an actual injury? What's happening? Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Man, I hope... Also, now we know which neck is Cowboy Cerrone's. (laughs) (laughs) because it's the neck that says bad motherfucker on it
2: in cases everybody's neck gets thrown into a big trash bag and we have to find his yes which neck is yours donald (laughs) are you are you thinking that maybe he shows up to fight
1: and uh smears off this makeup and aha that would be awesome if that's what he did but at this point it's starting to look like an actual injury occurred and uh, although
2: if your your plan is to like make your opponent think that you have a terrible eye injury, and then at the last minute reveal that it was all a ruse uh, to mess with him mentally. Matt Brown is probably the worst guy no, to do that Yeah, I was just going to say,
1: you know who that wouldn't work on? Yeah.
2: Matt Brown. Who does not give a fuck about what's wrong with your eye, no matter what the circumstances are.
1: Still going to punch your eye, is what Matt Brown would probably say.
2: Uh, Well, Chad, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? Did you see Roy Nelson's apology? I did. To Big John McCarthy. I did see it. For the little push kick in the buttocks that he delivered to him after that, what he thought was a late stoppage in that last fight. Now, the the Brazilian uh, commission or whatever had said, like, hey, here's the the, uh, penalty we're going to give this guy. But he could lessen it if he were to issue an apology. And then Roy goes out there in both a shirt and a hat that seems to advertise some kind of car tour that he does, which I didn't know. I didn't know he was operating man. tour. So he's going to use that opportunity when he makes a public apology for uh, committing an offense that has gotten other fighters fired and banned for life from the UFC. He's going to use that as an opportunity to promote his car tour thing that he's got on, and then he's going to read that apology with just as little enthusiasm as possible off a sheet of paper that he has brought with him. I gotta say, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me. Are you trying to make it very clear to us that you you're not actually
1: apologizing? Just a very sincere look out there.
2: Do you remember in the the film Any Given Sunday where out the the football coach played by Al Pacino shoves a reporter and you know, kind of just mildly injures him and then has to issue an apology? Yes. That was more enthusiastic than this apology.
1: (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, anybody who has listened to this podcast for any amount of time knows that the co-main event has mad love for the kid, pretty Tony Pettis. But Anthony Pettis has fallen on some hard times recently. Lost his lightweight title, suffered a number of losses, was frankly at the point in his career, despite the fact that he's still only 29 years old, that a lot of people were looking askance at him and saying, maybe we overestimated what this guy's ability was. Maybe he's actually kind of already on the downside of things. Lo and behold, Conor McGregor quote-unquote relinquishes the featherweight title. Jose Aldo is promoted to undis- quote-unquote undisputed champion. And then for reasons not easily articulatable, we're going to go ahead and have a interim featherweight title fight at UFC 206 between Max Holloway and dun 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 Anthony Pettis. Huh. Wow. Seems like Anthony Pettis is catching a pretty sweet break here.
2: Did not see that coming. I'll be honest. I,
1: and really, if we want
2: to lay out the whole cause and effect, really what happens first in this scenario is Daniel Cormier gets hurt.
1: Oh, yeah. Let's not forget about that. We'd be talking about D.C. Anthony Johnson, too, here, if not for that.
2: Okay. Well, now let's deal with the reality that we have. We have pretty Tony Pettis. We have Max Holloway for the interim featherweight title, which just you feel this spike in adrenaline when I just say the words, man, really gets you pumped, doesn't it?
1: I mean, this is a this is maybe the least defensible interim title fight that we've seen, right? Like this is an interim title fight. Basically in name only because they needed to slap some gold on the top of this pay-per-view. Like, this is actually a number one contender fight for who's going to fight Jose Aldo next, right? Like, we're just, we're kind of uh, uh, just messing with the nomenclature here.
2: Right. This is one of those fights, and it's not the first time we've seen it, where the interim belt is basically being used like when you go to uh, a butcher shop and it's really busy and you take a number and you wait for them to call your number. This one is, like, this belt is just a really heavy version of that little piece of paper that says, like, number 86 on it, so that when, when they call next for the featherweight title, you can hold up this belt and say, ah, see, I'm first in line, everybody. I guess what I wonder is, if Max Holloway wins this, then I think everybody will be like, okay, yeah, he is next in line. He he probably was next in line before he even had this fight. So, makes perfect sense. If Pretty Tony Petty wins... Pretty Tony Pettis wins this, which will just be two wins for him in the featherweight division. Uh, You know, a winning streak at two, which in the featherweight, you know, if you were a heavyweight, fine. That might put you in line for a title shot. At featherweight, it seems a little tough. Do we still look at it the same as, like, the completely deserving marker of a guy who ought to be fighting for the title next?
1: Well, I can tell you one thing without reservation, and that it's that Anthony Pettis will consider himself a two-division champion. Uh, he makes sure to point that out a couple of times during uh, this week's new Embedded episode. And we knew Max Holloway was going to be in here. If Max Holloway wins another fight, he'll have nine in a row. That guy was cruising for a title shot anyway. If anything, Max Holloway has just uh, had a, to make an extra stop at first base here before he, he rounds the rest of the bases. Anthony Pettis, good lord, man. I don't know if I can recall anything short of the heavyweight or light heavyweight division, a guy having a stroke of good fortune quite like this. Cause this is a dude that we were looking at that the, the world at large was looking at and, and and frankly thinking of as being one step from, from being done sort of. And now suddenly you're back. If you win this man, you're even if you don't uh, even if the featherweight title interim featherweight title is not looked upon as, as particularly legitimate, you are back.
2: Right. And you know, then you're you're basically just one good night's performance away from everybody retroactively changing their opinion of you. The same way that MMA fans are kind of jerks, and that we only remember what we saw last. When you, you know, you were awesome when you had the title and you're on a Wheaties box, and then you lose a couple fights, and suddenly we thought you were overrated, and the the best days are behind you. Do you go out there and win this one, and then suddenly everybody was like? You know, you just, you can give us some line about how you had some personal problems or you, you, there was some tiny training aspect that you hadn't dialed in and then you got it figured out and now you're unstoppable. That seems like the kind of thing I can envision us as a whole, just swallowing hook, line and sinker.
1: Yeah. Well, and a featherweight win over Max Holloway would be impressive, frankly, but like Anthony Pettis rolls into this thing on the virtues of a win over Charles Oliveira, which in and of itself is not all that impressive it's not like he rolled down to 145 and whipped frankie edgar's ass right like if he had done that then we would have been like oh anthony pettis at 145 could be a problem for people so he will yeah he'll get a little bit of momentum if he beats max holloway that'll be a heck of an accomplishment frankly the guy who's rattled off eight wins in a row uh and then we'll we'll go ahead and vault him into the super fight against jose aldo that would have been the class of 2013. Remember when we were talking about it back then, bickering in the in the press about how they didn't want to, uh, Jose Aldo wouldn't go up to lightweight or whatever to do it. So, so you're saying this might be this might have
2: the potential to turn into another one of those scenarios where we the MMA gets a twilight zone sort of wish fulfillment where we get the fight we wanted, only we get it a few years too late to the point where it just feels a little bit hollow, like we're Burgess Meredith stumbling out of the bank vault. To find a nuclear war has devastated everything and there's finally time to read the books. And then our glasses break.
1: You're the super fight, baby. Just like Mike Goldberg promised us <laughs> in January of 2013. <laughs> you know what I was surprised? Have you looked at the odds for this one? Uh, no, I have not. Because in your head, it seems like everybody's kind of
2: operating under the assumption that this ought to be Max Holloway's. Yeah. You know, Anthony Pettis yeah. has got a, a chance to, to go out there and have a have himself a good night and turn everything around. But odds are... Max Holloway's full head of steam will continue. Uh, he is the favorite in this, but not by a whole lot. I'm looking at about minus 175 here. Huh? Anthony Pettis going off at plus 155. If you had 20 bucks, you never wanted to see again, Jad, Is that enough to entice you?
1: For Anthony Pettis? Yes. No. I would think like two to one would be about where, where I would want to be before I put any money down on, on pretty Tony Pettis. But maybe those three, maybe I'm blind just because of those three losses in a row. Talk to me after this fight. Maybe he'll be back. Yeah. Maybe his, Maybe those three, maybe some personal problems was the only thing going on. Well,
2: I mean, I guess the thing is that makes me think that that probably won't be the case is that while he's a super dynamic fighter and can do a lot of exciting stuff, I think that one of the things that we saw in that string of losses was that if you don't let him get set and get his, his kicking game going and let him set up his offense the way he wants to, then he starts to have problems. And I don't know, you know, we've seen this before at times in MMA where, you know, people want to use throw around terms like exposed or something, and I think that's overstating it a little bit, but where people have figured out, like, okay, here's a way to kind of nullify something a guy has been doing that has a lot of success, and then it's up to that guy to realize people have, have figured something out, and can you then come up with something else as an answer to that? And I think that's one of the things that's going to be really interesting here because you know Max Holloway has looked at the same stuff we have uh, and is the kind of fighter who, frankly, who seems like he ought to be able to take advantage of something like that. Here's where I think we get to figure out if Anthony Pettis has figured out an, uh, another way to approach it.
1: Yeah, Brightside, whoever wins this, probably going to be a crackerjack fight against Jose Aldo. Uh, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff?
2: Well, you know, we talked about this; that was probably coming, Chad. But now we hear. That Chuck Liddell and Matt Hughes both lost their sweetheart do nothing executive gigs Aww, with the UFC. Yeah, seemed like that was going to happen when the UFC was sold to WME IMG. That immediately they sat around looking to to cut some costs, and those are some costs you could definitely cut. I guess I'm just saying, Bellator, don't even think about it. <laughs> Leave it alone, man. I know what's going through your head. I know you're you're looking around at your seniors tour. You're looking at a couple newly unemployed old dudes who may, may have been out the game just long enough to convince themselves that they still got a couple more good ones left in them. And to Chuck Liddell and Matt Hughes, I guess I'm just saying, consider one of those
1: grappling tournaments. Yeah. Submission so Underground. There you go. They're taking applications. Just saying. Ben, this week, I'm just saying in a sport where guys like Kenny Florian and Elias Theodoru are routinely lauded for their great hair. Can we get a little bit of love for the quaff of Henry Cejudo out here? This dude rolls around looking like a 1950s crooner. Like at any <laughs> moment, he's going to grab a mic and sing White Christmas. Like he's doing a buddy comedy film with Danny Kaye on the side when he's not fighting. And then he shows up in the octagon to fight Joseph Benavidez. Totally different hair. Now his hair has transformed into a weird hair helmet. That, as far as I know, may well protect him from those high kicks of Joseph Benavides. I'm just saying, in a, in a sport that is obsessed sometimes with male looks, Henry Cejudo's powerful hair, it's just being overlooked, man. I'm just saying. Just saying. You know, I could see a, as a good gimmick
2: for him, he could be a guy who kind of like, he shows up to weigh-ins with a, like, just a plain black
1: comb tucked into his front pocket. Yeah, and a handheld mirror that That's... he could be looking at himself in. <laughs> Come see us, Henry Cejudo. We got ideas. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down the stuff that happens at both these UFC events that are happening this week. And then look ahead to next weekend when some other UFC event will be happening. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.
2: I think also maybe if you're Henry Cejudo, you make a big deal about how you don't want to fight in any humid climates because of what it might do to the, your quaff.
1: Maybe come out spraying a big tube of arrogance like Rick Martel used yeah. to do. He really could have... Uh, Henry Cejudo he's really suffered from the loss of his gold shorts. Sure. Yeah. Now,